A software engineer will make many mistakes on their career journey. In time, engineers learn to make smaller mistakes, recognize them faster, and build appropriate guardrails. The demands of delivering software in a timely and efficient fashion often force developers to carefully optimize trade-offs in order to deliver solutions to their problems at hand. Software Mistakes and Trade-Offs, How to Make Good Programming Decisions, is the book by Thomas Lalek and John Skeet. In this episode, we interview Tomas about his experiences as a software engineer and sample the advice found in the book. Listeners interested in a copy can use the special discount code SEDLELEK35 at manning.com. Tomas, welcome to the show. Hi. You wrote a book, Software Mistakes and Trade-Offs, and you co-wrote it with John Skeet. John has been on the show before. He is an engineer's engineer. Tell me about your relationship with John Skeet. So it was very professional, and we met during this book, work on the book, basically. So it started with the mining process and submission of the table of contents. So basically, I've have an, I had an idea of of the book and like list of twelve topics, uh, and each topic is like about some real world uh, mistake and trade off that I've convinced that I've I was part of or I've witnessed that uh, as a, some kind of in, in other teams and so on. So I have uh, a list of those topics and one uh, one of those was uh, regarding date and time and second was regarding uh, compatibility of data so backward compatibility forward and so on how to keep it yeah and I've, I've submitted this table of content to Manning and they have this process to submit table of content to other authors that were successful and and so on so they they are authors authors so John was one of those persons that review table of contents and yeah he liked the idea a lot and uh, he proposed that uh, may we may co-work on this book basically and uh, this date and time chapter was the most important from his perspective because he is working on no that time c sharp library so that was natural that he will he take took ownership of this chapter and yeah, we agreed that he will be writing this exclusively and also compatibility of the data he uh, I, I was main, first I was thinking about using Avro Apache Avro as a main technology around concepts in, in this chapter but since uh, John has a lot of experience with gRPC and protobufs he also took ownership of this chapter and yeah that's his work you work at Datastax. Did you listen to the recent Datastax episodes that we did? No, not, not yet, but I, I plan to. So I talked to Jonathan Ellis about, oh my God, what is it? Pulsar. I talked to him about Pulsar, then I talked to another guy, another Pulsar expert. I forget his name off the top of my head, but we did two shows. I called them Pulsar Revisited and Pulsar Re-Revisited. Do you know any, anything about Pulsar? My main exper- expertise area is around Apache Kafka, so that's uh, I'm on this other edge of of solutions. So yeah. 
Why is Kafka an interesting system to you? I mean, I've, when I was working on the previous company, Allegro Group, this is uh, like biggest e-commerce in Poland. We had, we had like 18 millions of active users and uh, the backbone of architecture and everything was built using Kafka. So it was it was used as a queue between microservices. There was like hundreds of microservices and they were like using Kafka as the main event bus. Even the technology and open source project called Hermes was we built that uh, around Kafka uh, to add some additional layer API layer. So that was my first uh, like first occurrence of Kafka in my projects. Yeah, and I've started. We started to integrate some code like to to integrate with this with this Kafka solution, and we were building streaming uh, streaming application for analyzing basically click stream of end users and it was like delivered uh, using Kafka and it was years ago so Pulsar was not well known by then, then. so Kafka was the, the only maybe one of the only choices that possible one possible choice that we had back then and that, that I've started building my expertise around this technology then in, in data at uh, data stacks uh, Kafka connector I was involved in, in delivering that so Kafka uh, Cassandra uh, integration using Kafka connect framework Kafka 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 why is Kafka such an important piece of technology why is that tool so fundamentally useful to distributed systems mm, good question yeah so like if uh, if I will refer to my book, it's, this is the chapter. Let me check. Uh, so this is chapter eleven, dealing with deliver semantics in distributed systems. Yeah. So Kafka is out there quite a long time. So it is production proven for sure, and this is very stable technology. So if you are if you are expecting to handle and if you are expecting scalability, right, uh, to have delivered for your project without worrying a lot about it, then I think it's a good choice. And also, it is well documented. There is a lot of projects around it. Also, the whole ecosystem that Confluent delivers is quite rich. Integrations like with, uh, for example, with Schema Registry and treating Avro as a first-class citizen format for data the data layer, like the data storage, is also very good. It gives a lot of synergy because you have this versioning of data that is uh, well incorporated in, in the Kafka ecosystem. So basically it's, it's very production proven, but of course our industry is changing, right? So Kafka was built years ago and some new concepts like, like multi-tenancy, maybe not uh, the best possible in Kafka. So then some alternatives arrive, like Pulsar, right? When you look at the Kafka development story, you basically have a story of a technology that starts at LinkedIn and then gets a streaming ecosystem built around it with, um, what's the LinkedIn streaming system? SAMSA, right? Mm -hmm. Gets a SAMSA system built around it. 
spins off into its own company, and then goes IPO. That's a lot of history. What are the biggest mistakes and like misdirections? I mean, by the way, really, really well, well maintained open source product for sure. But if we're looking at from the vantage point of your book, what are the mistakes they made? Yeah, I mean, in my book, I'm not trying to analyze like evolution of technologies too much, right? For the one chapter, because Kafka is here like one chapter story for for one of of twelve topics. Yeah, but for sure, it's important to understand those deliver semantics and how they impact both client and and like consumer and producer sides. And and also, also, the Kafka API is quite low level for some some folks. Uh, so even if you are using some API that wraps the Kafka API, it's it's crucial to understand it. So it's not very it's not easy technology to use. Uh, so it's not like when you are executing HTTP call using client library, you need to configure only timeouts and like execute it. In Kafka, you need to have this full understanding of, of internals, how consumer is tracking offsets, right? How to commit uh, when when something is processed, how to resume processing, and are you okay with duplicates or not, right? There is there is a lot of questions to ask before using this technology. Yeah, and that's that's the what I'm trying to answer and explain in in this dedicated Kafka dedicated chapter. Did you look at Pulsar at all? Did you look at the Kafka versus Pulsar question? Yeah, sure, sure. That's that's a big topic here at, at Data Stacks. I mean, if you had already experts, uh, Pulsar experts here, I'm not sure if if we will find something new. Tomas, you know who I think about a lot is Martin Kleppman. Do you like Martin Kleppman? Do you like his stuff? Yeah, I've. I love this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, is he is he basically the best in distributed systems on the internet? Like his writing is so clear and it's so modern. You know, like last time I talked to him, we were talking about operational transform logs and Google Docs. Like, how do you build Google Docs that works on an airplane? Like that networks over a network on an airplane. It's like a crazy thought experiment. Like you have a flying firewalled network on an airplane. How do you build Google Docs? across that network it's like why are you even asking this question man <laughs> it's like kind of funny that's what i love about martin kleppman and he wrote that book what was that first book he wrote like big data streaming something or whatever you know what i'm talking about or big lessons from big data or whatever it's called so martin kleppman's show on my on my podcast is i think it's our most popular episode it's like one of our top five popular episodes he's such a wizard but it kind of seems like you've written something that's on the same scale, like designing data-intensive applications. That is a universal concept. Data-intensive applications, totally universal, kind of like your yours. Software mistakes and trade-offs. Dude, trade-offs are this like ultimate management challenge, right? Yes, yes. Well, this, this the last data-intensive applications book is one of the best books I've read for sure. Data-intensive applications, designing data-intensive applications. Yes, exactly. And yeah, I've I've tried to, I've read it some time ago, but I think it's, yeah, I agree with you that the approach of explaining things is very, uh, yeah, it's it's great there. But the difference is that his technology is quite, his book is quite technology agnostic, right? 
So he tries to present concepts and it's up to reader to find which concept is implemented in which specific technology, right? And here I, I wanted to go like a bit more practice in a practical way. So I'll give this specific technology context as well. Uh, so when picking, yeah, so for example, there's a chapter about leveraging data locality and, and memory of your machines. So for sure, there is like a dedicated or a couple of chapters in his in his book about this topic. But here I'm trying to like also translate it and show it in a specific technology. Like this is Apache Spark in this example and how this data locality concepts, partitioning and so on impact the big data processing using one of the most well-known and most used, used uh, framework. So that's that's one difference. But as this, those concepts are, as you said, quite generic and it, it can be thought of like a similar book for sure. Tell me about the architecture of the book. It's, by the way, can I just tell you something? The only reason I haven't even looked at your book is because I'm completely underwater. Like I'm just completely, completely underwater. Like at this point, I'm like waking up at 5 a.m., going to bed at midnight, um, trying to get these companies I'm building off the ground. It's It's been pretty challenging. And so I'm sort of dropping the ball. I just want to apologize for that. Sure. But on the other hand, it's, I think it's also uh, maybe it has some benefits that you are you are not biased, but I can just like speak about the book like the first time to you and you are. Yeah, I understand that. Thank you for understanding. I'm really curious about it though. And by the way, I actually think that in many ways, the best way of extracting information about a source is to do a podcast about an author. Basically, I want to distill who you are and why you wrote this book and some of the key takeaways. So it's almost like I don't even really really need to read the book to, to get what I'm trying to get here, which is I want to understand who you are and why you wrote this book. Can you tell me that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so this, the story about this book started, I think, at the beginning of my like professional career, engineering career. So uh, I know in, in the software industry, there is a lot of decisions to make. Like you need almost every day, you need to make some low-level decisions. Like, uh, do you use this pattern in your code or other pattern? But also higher-level decisions, like once once a week, once a month, when you are discussing design of a specific specific system or even architecture and which direction you should go and maybe which library to pick or how to use a specific specific technology and or pick one over another yeah so and those decisions i think everyone made some mistakes right it's not like every like there is a person that always made a good decision that was the best one and Often also when you are considering those those trade-offs, you are considering two or more that are valid, that seems valid from the beginning. But then as, as you pick one direction and like your system is evolving, you are gaining some more insights about this decision and what you could do in a different way, right? And what, on the, on the other hand, what was as expected. And, and based, based on that, I've started to write my personal decision log and mistakes log right, uh, throughout my uh, professional career. And so, for example, when our team was picking uh, to pick a scheduler library or scheduler solution or to design our own, 
and when there was like big um, discussion about it, we pick one uh, solution, and it turns out that it was not a perfect, uh, perfect one. And then there was some after, like after longer period of time, you gain some perspective. And yeah, I've I've just I was rewriting those decisions, mistakes, and so on. And after some time, it was like a list of quite, quite much, quite nice topics. And they, and after some time, I found I thought that maybe they are quite generic. That other people also had similar problems, like when picking uh, some technology, designing their code, and so on. So at this point, I I started to think that maybe that is a good uh, idea to just share share my findings and lessons learned some in the in a hard way and share with people to not let them do the same mistakes right and basically each chapter is just uh, like production uh, proven approach or product uh, and it's proven in a good way or bad way but each chapter contains those lessons learned from going in a one direction and then retrospective what could be done in a different way yeah because for example in a scrum and agile retrospective is often thought of like only regarding the smaller like smaller period of time right week two or something like this and when you made a specific decision regarding system it can have consequences in like months two six months years right and because i was working at my at Places where I where I was working years, like not months, but years, I've also seen the consequences of, of those decisions after even a couple of years. And that's that's a goal of my book to share those lessons. In writing about this book, do you find that you can pull on your life? For example, so like, I think about investing, like I think about software. I think about game design, like I think about software. I think about everything, like I think about software. Every every decision I make, every micro micro habit I have is architected like a piece of software, like a piece of um, just like stringing together Linux commands or something. Do you feel that way about your life? I mean, to measure everything? Just to measure everything, to be super methodical and programmatic about everything that you do. Yeah, I think that sometimes it's it's not easy, right? Sometimes I w- I I would want to be not so pragmatic, but that's that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah, for example, even if when I'm planning some holiday holiday season, I've, I I'm creating some kind of a spreadsheet and writing what what I what we will be doing every day with with like detailed a list of things. So yeah. I see what you mean. So, uh, dude, Datastax, one of the coolest companies, for sure. I feel like the core competency of Datastax is just to do really, really hard, good distributed system software, right? It's like, yeah, it's, like it's like a strategy it. that's effectively unbeatable, right? It's effectively an unbeatable strategy. It's not necessarily the fastest strategy. It's not necessarily the best strategy, but it's a strong and almost indestructible strategy. We just do distributed system software. We never die. We always grow. Yeah. So, but on the other hand, yeah, to, to reference one of my chapters as well, 
Yeah, so I have I have this chapter about cost, consistency and atomicity in distributed systems, and I've I claim that right now in the today's industry, almost everyone is doing distributed systems, right? Even if 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 you are calling an external or API or something like this, you you are in a distributed environment. So those, those dude, if you're if you're on a single node machine building React software, you're in a distributed system. Yeah, because you have multiple cores, right? Even multi-threading, you can fold thing like every core is some kind of. A or even every every virtual core, like a Node.js event loop, is like a virtual core, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I think if you are planning to have a product that handles more than one customer, you used to we will need to have distributed systems involved in and in some way so tell me about what you work on and maybe can you give me like from your you you spent 34 months at data stacks what mistakes and trade-offs have you made at data stacks that's me yeah so for example in in the in the chapter two yeah, when we were designing the java driver like this this library so there was a discussion uh, if we should pick at low level, right? If we should go into, but I think that that's a design decision that a lot of people are facing. So, if you should design your your components using inheritance, right, or maybe you are fine with with some kind of a duplicated approach, and they will evolve independently. Yeah, so that's that's a classic trade-off between some kind of a duplication, but you have a loose coupling between components, right? And on the other hand, you have this. Uh, inheritance that will save you a lot of duplication and maybe maintenance will be uh, maintenance burden will be smaller but uh, you are introducing tight coupling so this doesn't decision is like it's, it's it's described in the in the second chapter also also when when designing apis and components that are used by and client libraries that are used by you know a lot of uh, other in- engineers, yeah, it's it's hard to like at the design stage and engineering stage. It's hard to guess every possible use case. So there, oh, there is always a use case that may surprise you. So it's it's important to guard against unexpected usage of, of your API. So that's also I'm one of the chapters uh, is around that. This is chapter. Let me take a look fourth chapter like balancing flexibility and complexity and the more flexible your API will be so customers will be able to inject your the code everywhere you know you, you as I have an impression you, you mentioned Node.js right so you are more from the JavaScript developers uh, space or yeah, because I was you mean like in terms of what shows appeal to my listeners no we were like what language you are most into, like what technologies. Mm-hmm. I mean, aren't we kind of beyond the point of language fascination? Like all the languages are okay, they're fine. I just, I don't really care. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to reference like, for example, in those... You know what the best language is? Is React. Not even React.js, it's just React. But there's a lot of injection points there, right? So you, you can custom customize... Yeah, but injection points are just like effectively on-the-fly compilation, right? It's just like higher-level components that have sort of been compiled into UI for you. 
Mm-hmm. But if, if you are providing this flexible API, it's important also to guard against those those unexpected usages. So in, in the JVM or Java world, you know, everything can throw some exception, unexpected uh, things can happen. Uh, and it's crucial to not let the color scale uh, impact your like event loop or your main processing and so on. And it's also important in the context of multi-threading and just like concurrency to not like if you also exposing some kind of su- such an API and extension points to clients and uh, you don't know what they do, it's possible that they will block in some way, right? And if you, for example, if you are in an uh, event loop world, every blocking call is very problematic. It can like block your main thread from processing. So, so it's important to like detect that and, and just guard against those usages. So that's for sure. I, I think I think that every everyone that is providing writing on some libraries that I that are used by other engineers uh, will at some point have those problems. Anyway, what else is exciting? Can I ask you a question? Here's a distributed question. Distributed systems question. Like, well, actually, I got a few of them. What do you think of this Databricks versus Snowflake? dichotomy in terms of how they manage big data infrastructure yeah could could you be more specific like so so have you have you looked at the architectures of snowflake and databricks yeah i've looked at it but some time ago so i'm not like up to date with so you have you have like you have spark the databricks ecosystem and in there they're doing everything in the open source and it's got this clean set of abstractions, the Spark processing engine, the Delta Lake system, which provides access semantics to essentially data lake information. So you can do transactional semantics across a data lake. It's a profound idea, right? If you can run your own data lake and build transactional systems on top of that, that's like low cost transactionality. It's, it's, a, it's an ultimate vision. And then you compare that with Snowflake, which is kind of like, proprietary Oracle style, hardcore, hardcore proprietary Oracle style for data warehouse. Both approaches seem very good, very viable. In the Snowflake approach, they can be more prescriptive about how they do the memory hierarchy because the memory hierarchy is not subject to open source whims. So building a memory hierarchy system in open source is probably harder than building it in closed source. So Snowflake arguably has an advantage, at least an early advantage, but maybe not a last mover advantage. So we may see Databricks be last mover here. It's just very interesting combat that I see. And then you have Kafka, which is sort of like also, Kafka is like also potentially a transactional data warehousing like system, but it's not exactly that. I don't know. Does, does that make sense? Is that entertaining to you or you want to talk about something else? Yeah. Regarding this transactional, do you mean like exactly once, providing exactly once in this context? It doesn't have to actually be exactly once. It can mean exactly once like. It's like yeah, some it's like, amount of consistency. It's just consistent. Mm-hmm. It's like eventually consistent. We don't know of how eventual it is, but it's eventually consistent. Yeah. So yeah, in the context of, of Kafka, it's like it, there is a way to have this effective exactly once. But you know, this this cost is always this cost is hidden somewhere. Uh, so it's not like suddenly it's not possible that HTTP like HTTP, for example, HTTP requests will not fail anymore or you will not get some network partitions and so on. 
So still there will be some coordination cost. And that's the like that's the customer decision to pick if they are okay with like sacrificing something, like for example performance, right? To have this consistency or not. As long as the, the solution gives you a possibility to tweak those parameters, like for example in Kafka you can you can influence that by setting these acknowledgements if you want to wait for acknowledgements for all replicas, right? Or from one replica and uh, other, let other stuff uh, be done in an asynch asynchronous way. So as long as this is possible, then you are not like tied to a specific uh, distributed model. That's, then such a solution is maybe more viable for you and more flexible. But on the other hand, if you are choosing a spe specialized solution, like you mentioned, the snowflake, uh, yeah, you may be okay with this this hard harder uh, transactions model. But after some time, maybe if you will need more scalability, and you will you will be okay with uh, loosening those uh, consistency guarantees, it may be not possible for you, right? Because it's like it's hard coded in the engine and it's not exposed to you. Can I ask you a crazy question? Yeah, sure. If you had to build an an infrastructure company today, what infrastructure company would you start? I think yeah, Kubernetes is trending, right? So you would, you would need to have the Kubernetes somewhere there and maybe some automation of it. Totally, totally. I mean, th that's what's amazing, right? Isn't Kubernetes pretty useful? It's it's like a Kubernetes is like a Zookeeper done right, is my perspective. Right, it's like you kind of want etcd. It's kind of it's, Kubernetes, is kind of like the etcd company. It's like, what do you do if you if you have etcd? You build Kubernetes. What do you do if you have Kubernetes? You build everything. Yeah, so some time ago there was, I think, four years or five years ago there was this like two tools were like Mesos and Kubernetes. I don't know. Do you remember? You remember, still remember Mesos? Oh yeah. No, no, no. Did did you look at the container orchestration wars? Like I covered that like it was a war. It was a war, man. It was a bloodbath. Container orchestration. I've never seen so many failed companies. But there are some. There are some companies that invest a lot in, like for example, my previous company built everything around Mesos, and there was a lot of customization of it and so on. I don't know if how. I think it will be. I mean, Mesos is such a brilliant system. It's such it's such a good abstraction, but it's they sort of lost a marketing battle. I feel it's it's not really a technology battle; it's a marketing battle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Kubernetes has this uh, Google-like certification, let's say. Right? And it starts with a K. How many words start with K? Like, not very many. Kubernetes is cool, man. It's Kubernetes. That is the coolest name for any piece of software. Yeah, but it's a bit hard. It's a bit long, <laughs> to be honest. But you can insert this eight, and it's, it's true. But it's it's got one more syllable than Mesosphere, but two more than Mesos. Mesos is is kind of a more peaceful name. Kubernetes feels feels uh, combative almost. What do you think of service meshes? Uh, yeah, that's like. If 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 I would like to reference it to my book, it's it's not about automation. It's more like about picking the proper tool. Automation is left out, so I would not. I don't have strong opinions here for sure. 
and it's not yet it's not yet uh, production proven. So even if if there is a lot of companies that go in that direction, it's like not long ago. So maybe we will need to wait a little bit to learn about more trade-offs involved there. It's like when the new technologies is up there and everyone start using it, it may be problematic. For example, if you at the API level, so if you have reactive reactive stuff, right? That was also trending some time ago. The streaming manifesto and a lot of technologies that implement reactive, like you have Rx, Reactor in Java, right? In other in other in other languages as well. And suddenly everyone started writing reactive code. But it's it's like it also has overhead. It's not an easy abstraction. Uh, I think for some of the engineers, and also it has like tricky trading model, right? And at the beginning, when everyone started using that API, there was not much uh, information about those potential trade-offs and problems. But then, when it settled out, we know more, than, and it it is it can be used for specialized use cases for sure. And same regarding data mesh, right? Hey, Tomas, would you have any interest in joining one of my companies as chief architect? Seriously, I, I've got a few companies that I raised money for. I don't know if I'm at this level. You can you can ask me this question again after reading the book. And if, if, if I have to read the book? Or... Come on, man. <laughs> How about I'll read the book after you join one of my companies? Dude, yeah, we got so could... much stuff to build. We got so much stuff to build. We got some serious consistency issues. If everyone in this, if we could list this book as a like requirement <laughs> for we can. Engineer. How about e? So that's okay. That's kind of an okay idea. The thing is, I don't have time for books anymore. Can you give me like the twenty-minute Loom video version of the book? Right? Can you give me like the condensed version? That's what I want. I want like the Instagram version of your book. Like. You know, what's the 20 minute, 30 minute, 60 minute YouTube video that you can make out of this book? Like, okay, how about this? If you join, I will make you like a short movie about this book. Like, I'll collaborate with you. We can work with our content team. We can make a video about this book. I'm completely serious. If you join, join Rectangle or Supercompute, and then Software Daily will produce a video for your book. Not to put the pressure on you. You can answer off air. I just want you to know I respect you a lot. And I think you'd be really interesting to work with. So we can just say that and leave this for the off air conversation. There's no rush, but I would really like to work with you. You sound like a Martin Kleppman kind of person. Oh, that's thank you for saying that. I'm happy where I where I am, but yeah, you know the things are changing in the future. Jonathan Ellis would be would be really upset if I uh, if I convinced you to join my company. Jonathan Ellis and I played Dominion online together. Um, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe that's not public information, but Jonathan Ellis is really good at Dominion. He's really interesting. Very smart, tactical person and super smart distributed systems leader. Regarding this this 60 minutes video, that sounds like a great idea, but I think it would be really hard to do this because like, you know, often te- technical books are like end-to-end projects. Like for example, I've read a gRPC book for for like one week ago, and it was like you were learning concepts from the beginning to the end regarding this specific technology, right? So we started from the 
basics, how to create a simple application, and then progress to production usages and so on. So it's easy to write, to, to create a 60 minutes video, I think, about such a book. So you will just skip some steps, intermediate steps. But ho however, on, uh, on in our book, every chapter is like separate concept. So basically you can pick one chapter that is interesting to you and read only this one, right? So for example, you, you have some problems about date, time in your systems. Then you go to this, to this chapter number seven that John, uh, John uh, written and yeah, you will be fine with it. On the other hand, you have, for example, problem with, yeah, with, with reasoning about uh, Kafka. So you are going to this chapter 11. On the, then you, you need to pick an important library for your project, right? And you are considering, for example, dependency injection uh, stuff. You are considering one or another. So there is a chapter about picking, picking third-party libraries and there is a checklist what to, what to check, uh, what to uh, look at, and what's most important. So then you go to the specific chapter. So maybe it will be possible to like present each chapter in like 10 minute video maybe that's feasible five i don't know but if you will multiply that by number of chapters and eh, maybe it will be like 100 minutes 60 minutes but that's that's a great idea. so i sent you i sent you a a short video just now over chat we did this video called modern data infrastructure it was very cheap to execute on i think this is kind of the future of uh, software media if you look at this video that I sent you, um, so it's short form video content and we're going to do a lot more of it, but we could definitely do one for your book. Yeah. If you, if you will add those graphics, that would be great. Yeah, because add, like, like the graphics that you're seeing in the, in the modern data infrastructure video, right? Mm -hmm. Do you like those? Yeah. They look, they look pretty great. So how much do you think that video costs to produce? And what tool did you use for that? We outsourced it. Okay. How much do you think it costs? And that's the total. One minute fifty three, right? I don't know. One Take thousand. a guess. Something like that. Something like that. Mm -hmm. But but operating that, like executing on that piece of work is that's our core competency. So it's like the cost of goods sold is quite low, but the ultimate content is uh is a very high margin. So like we're trying to figure out this video thing. We should just make a book for you. In fact, or sorry, make a video for you. I'll make a video for you for free just because I like you and I like your book. If you can just like, if I can just sync you with my video team, we'll make you a video. I'm not sure it'll take, it might take you like, a, take us like a month or two, but we'll make you something cool. Does that work? Do you think John Ski would be okay with that? Sure, sure. That would be awesome. I think we will both, we'd be glad for sure. What do you want to see in software media? Like you see Manning, you see O'Reilly, you see Software Daily. What is software media? What should it be? I mean, I think that it is different regarding from, from, from your experience. Right? If you are a junior developer and you are starting, uh, starting your journey, then it's nice to take a, a book. Like book is a good resource for you. Book about specific technology that is written by someone that like needed to uh, work with that with years and has a lot of experience and uh, give you like golden uh, roles without maybe explaining everything right 
uh, and going into very uh, detail, very low details. And as you gain more experience, then you also need a bit different content. So you start looking at, uh, like you don't search for a book how to, uh, like you said, about specific language and some specific technology. Maybe it's enough for you to just check out a specific an application, example application, experiment with documentation and so on. But uh, then you maybe the books like about more patterns, like concepts, and those also trade-offs, right? Or how to more generic books, more like designing data-intensive systems are starting to be important for you. And then, but you know, co- code will always tell you the truth. So also good resources that are around practical, practical applications are, I think, a future. Also, you know, this very in- interactive way of learning things. Like for example, GraphQL, a GraphQL and this, those technologies, you have this GraphQL playground that you can like learn learn stuff in an interactive way. I, I remember that in the Scala programming language, you have this uh, rep, right? This interactive command line tool that you could just write a code and give, get instant feedback. So in the Java world, it was some, it was like mind blowing, right? How is that possible to just, you don't need to write this whole skeleton of application just to test one line of code. And it, it was very interactive. And I think it speeds up learning a lot. And I, as I see a lot of, a lot of learning, teaching materials are going into that direction. Like in the Linux Academy, I recently I took some Kubernetes courses there was a lot also of interactive stuff, so you could like experiment with this and so on. What's your next book? I don't plan it yet. I mean, like right now, I'm focusing on that one and on marketing, marketing stuff. I feel that uh, marketing is huge amount of work, even comparing to writing and actual content. It's a totally different kind of work, but you know, in- engineers like to create some stuff and that's most more maybe more rewarding and maybe more easier for engineers like but on the other hand if you need to market your uh, something that you created it's a totally different uh, work and i'm focusing on that now awesome well what else do you want to talk about should we wrap up or anything else you want to add i don't know maybe about this marketing yeah like Six years ago, just after the, the college with my colleague, we started to building a startup. Uh, it, was, it was called Initlearn. It was before this crazy pandemic uh, times and so on. But we had an idea of, of this learning people teaching using online tools. And we based mainly that around Screen Hero. So you could share your, you know, share your desktop and, for example, learn, code, uh, learn to code from other places place in the world so we we designed we were engineering this application for months there was a lot of features and so on so this was really nice to learn those this stuff but when it comes to marketing it was really too hard for us like we we failed on that so creating a product was the easier yeah it was easier easier part of the of the work back then and I imagine that for some products today, it can be similar. 
All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to end. Tomas, thank you for coming on the show. It was yeah, nice to be there. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Awesome. Talk to you soon.